Everyone has a relationship with gender. What's your story? Hello and welcome to Gender Stories with your host, Dr. Alex Taffy. Hello, Gender Stories listeners. This episode was recorded as a special lecture hosted by the School of Nursing at the University of Minnesota, along with co-sponsors the Office for Equity and Diversity and Gender and Sexuality Center for Queer and Trans Life. Special thanks to Dr. Teddy Potter from the School of Nursing who helped convene this. Before we get started on covering this very complex topic, ooh, in about 40 minutes, um, I would like to just do some acknowledgements. You know, I'm a somatic practitioner, so I always like starting from breath, and at the moment I'm a little out of breath because I've been recovering from pneumonia for like six weeks. Don't worry, I'm not contagious at all. Um, And so I would invite you to just breathe and just notice where you are right now. Maybe you want to kind of settle in your sit a little bit more, You want to look around, see where the exit are, so you can get out of here if you need to. Whatever you need to feel a little more comfortable in this moment, just take a moment to breathe. Yeah. And then I'd like to invite you to take another breath um, and acknowledge the land that we're standing on, the Dakota Anishinaabe land that we're standing on, and all that ongoing complex history that we are part of in many different ways. So kind of taking a breath into that. And then I invite you to like take a breath into ancestors. And I know ancestors can be complicated so they don't have to be ancestors of blood, but they can also be ancestors of activism, ancestor, gender blessed ancestors as my colleague, Dr. Pavini Moray calls them but just acknowledging that we're not the first to engage in this work and that hopefully we will not be the last. And so taking a breath into that kind of lineage of ancestors, whatever that means to you in this moment. And then taking one more breath into the community that is making this possible. We've heard from all this wonderful people, all this wonderful services and parts of the university community. And so taking a breath into this larger container of the University of Minnesota community that is holding the space for this to happen today. And then kind of coming back to yourself and if you closed your eyes a little bit to connect internally a little bit more, this is a good time to kind of look around and reorient yourself to the space and and kind of See if you notice arriving a little bit more. So I always like to start from just a little presence, a little acknowledgement. And, um, and I feel that's particularly important when talking about this topic because I am not necessarily going to say anything new or that has not been said before. But I think one of my skills is to bring together lots of different threads from lots of different areas and weave them together. And that's one of the things that I'm told I do fairly, fairly competently. I don't know, you, you get to judge that for yourself. So today I'm going to try to keep it really simple because like I said, um, I always have this beautiful vision and ideas. I'm like a Pisces, I like connection. And so I'm like, yes, let's talk about gender liberation as healing justice. And then I was like, mm, in 40 minutes, okay, Alex, that's ambitious. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about why gender What is gender liberation? What is civil injustice? And why do I believe that gender liberation can be viewed within the framework of healing justice? And then we'll have a little bit of time for questions and answers as well. So I'm gonna try to keep that trajectory um, pretty simple today. So we'll start from why gender. And I will start from like disappointing people immediately. If you're expecting like a um, how to, uh, work with like trans and or non-binary clients. This is not that talk. This is like a different framework. So just like take a breath into that disappointment if that's what you were expecting. <laughs> that's okay. 
that's okay. And I can point you to other resources. I, I do also talk about that, but today is not that talk. But I do wanna talk a little bit about white gender. You know, I was brought up in the 1970s in Italy, and I was mostly brought up by second wave feminists. And many of my mentors uh, from my doctoral programs were also uh, second wave feminists. And in fact, I was in the field of women's studies. There was no gender studies quite yet, at least in the institution I was part of at the time. And yes, that is me looking very stylish in a little like carousel car when I was about five years old, I think that picture. And um, the, I wanna still locate how the personal is political. And so I wanna talk about white gender from both a personal and political perspective, because that was kind of the first lens I looked at uh, gender through. And so the 1970s was a time when lots of people were coming into consciousness around gender, right? Some of you might remember that time. Some of you are too young, but your parents might have been part of that time or other family members. And I was coming um, into a country that didn't have divorce until 1971, which had a very specific gendered aspect. I remember when we had um, legislation about the legality of abortion go through when I was around elementary school age, which also uh, is about reproductive health and about gender. And I was doing gender as a five-year-old, even though I didn't know what that meant. What I knew was the clothes I felt comfortable wearing and who I liked to play with. And that sometimes people thought I was a boy and I would go along with that because that felt fun. But that also other things felt fun, like making clothes for my Barbie and so on. So I've always been fascinated by gender because I've always find it, found it very confusing. One of the things that I remember growing up is like all this gendered expectations, right? And you might have some of those memories for yourself. One of the exercises we developed at the Transgender Commission when I used to be at the University of Minnesota was actually a questionnaire asking people, when did you first become aware of your gender? You know, how, you know, and all those other questions like, are there aspects of your gender identity expressions that feel comfortable or less comfortable? So we all have those gender stories, right? Which is pretty much um, part of my work more and more. Every time I talk about gender, I found that people had a story that was connected to pain and trauma, um, as well as joy and expansiveness. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. So I was so fascinated by gender that I went and got a whole PhD in women's studies. And I wrote two books about it. And I have a podcast, so obviously I'm a little bit obsessed with gender. So that tells you a little bit about the personal aspect. And there's so much more to say, but I think it's important to locate that because often people think, oh, you talk about gender because you're trans. And I was like, no, I did OPHD on women in disability in higher education. And I didn't even know pe trans people existed when I did that in the early 90s because I hadn't been exposed to the community and I knew how I felt about myself but I didn't know there was the community. I didn't know there was language. I was still very much entrenched in that second wave kind of feminist um, movement, which was very empowering in many ways. And we'll look at that in a moment, but it was also um, not expansive enough for other aspects of my identity and experiences. And then there was also the political, right? I referenced some very political historical markers in my own countries that have a lot to do with gender. But when we think about um, being here on Turtle Island and what we currently know in the United States, we can think about a lot of different gender stories. We can think about the gender stories of indigenous communities where indigenous women are much more likely to be murdered and missing and not be covered in the media at all, for example. So that's a pretty macro kind of gender story that doesn't get told enough, right? And I'm gonna talk about some, uh, some painful stuff as we talk about this topic. And so just take care of yourself as you need to. And I really wanna acknowledge that some of the things I talk about will impact some bodies more than others in this room. And so to just do what you need to do to take care of yourself both during the talk and afterwards. So that's, that's a pretty macro-political aspect of the ongoing settler colonial project, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. And then if we think about um, just patriarchy in general, right? There's been a big uncovering, a big, you know, the, the marches and the, the pink hats, which are really problematic. And we could do a whole talk about it and also really empowering all at the same time, right? Because nothing is simple when it comes to gender. So 
So this is not a simple topic. This is not, you know, the patriarchy is not a simple topic, definitely to break down. And it has impacted people for a long time and it does connect to the ongoing settler colonial project, right? And then we can think about black women in this country and we can think um, all, the, in, all the different ways in which black women are impacted, you know, more likely to be murdered, which is unfortunately generally a reality for black and brown bodies, including through system, not just like the police, but also through systems such as healthcare providers, right? There are lots of different inequalities. And again, that could be a whole lecture in its own right. So there could be a lecture in its own right on all this different kind of macro political aspects of how gender is institutionalized and how gender is performed on a social and cultural level. I think one of the things that happens is we tend to think of gender and gender identity and experiences very much as individual experiences. But they happen within a macro system. They happen within a cultural system, within a linguistic system, within an educational system, within an architectural system. You know, thinking even bathrooms, like that, that's an architecture feature, right? So there is so ingrained um, in all of our systems. So when we, and when we talk about gender, we, are, we can also talk about disability justice and the way that disabled feminists, for example, um, really uncovered how a social model of disability wasn't enough, right? Because what about the body? What about embodiment? What about balancing both the social aspects and the individual experience of disability? So even if we stay just within the realm of feminism, there are decades, well, I would say actually there are centuries of struggle, right? There are centuries of gender stories. There are centuries of struggles. You know, there are centuries of um, movements and who is included and who's excluded. And I remember even in the 80s and 90s within the kind of the feminist movement, you know, all the struggle around do working class women um, resonate with some of the struggles that middle class women were um, promoting? you know, in a kind of European context. Um, did black women feel included? Were lesbian included? Like all of those different struggles and trans women kind of all along, right? So decades, and then when we take that bigger picture, centuries, and then more. Imagine almost as if we were able to kind of take a bird's eye view and go like higher and higher and higher and be able to see just how complex this topic is. So when we're talking about gender, it is personal and it is political for me. And, and that could be like a whole lecture. I could go into much more depth into any one of those aspects. But today I really wanna talk about gender liberation because there is, there is a lot of evidence. We know a lot about the trauma of a rigid gender binary. You know, we know how that impacts health. We know how that impacts health for different populations, but somehow the different populations are kept in kind of tidy little boxes, right? These are the health disparities between men and women. These are the health disparities between white people and black people, between black men and black women, between indigenous folks and non-indigenous folks, within Latinx communities, within immigrant communities, between cis people and trans people. And cis people, all that it means, it's a Latin prefix, that you identify on the same side of the, like the, the gender you were assigned at birth, whereas trans, it just means that you identify somewhere else than the gender you were assigned at birth. So there are kind of all these binaries, all these boxes, and as you might have guessed, I'm not a big fan of binaries in any way. And so we have a lot of data about this, but what I wanna do is um, what happens when we take a lens of gender liberation because in some ways the trauma of gender and the way we've been approaching it is rooted in the same framework. And if, it's, if it is true that we cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools, then I believe it is true. I am a really old school feminist in lots of ways. And those things are like deep in my bones from you know, black scholars, black feminists, those were the people that made sense to me when I started studying uh, this topic because they were talking from a liberation framework. And that's what I was really looking for. And um, I remember coming into that second wave feminism and, and really wanting to embrace it, of course, you know, and I'm the parent of a girl, um, a young girl who's becoming a young woman now. And so I do believe there is a lot of power in messages like we can do it, right? I remember being brought up and thinking, yes, 
I can be um, anybody I want to, I can do all the things. And then I was also looking around me and thinking about what is the cost of doing all the things and who really gets to do all the things. And actually what is the hidden labor uh, behind cis white women who I'm seeing doing all the things and what is the cost on their health? You know, I remember being a PhD student and every woman faculty I knew was sick. They were either getting sick with cancer, they were getting sick with chronic health issues. This is not an accident, you know, and we were talking about sexual harassment in higher education. We're still talking about it a, few, a couple of decades later. So um, is it liberation if it's still binary was the question that I didn't have words for yet, but that I was starting to touch into. Is it enough to just tell girls and boys that they don't have to stay <clears throat> within a very confined box? You know, is it, not, is it enough to tell boys that it's okay to cry, it's okay to be vulnerable, it's okay to have kind of a softer masculinity, for want of a better word, and to girls that they can be strong, they can be capable. And also, how much pressure is it to tell girls that they can be strong? And also, what happens when we actually look at the experiences of um, girls and women from an intersectional perspective? Right? How can kind of indigenous women kind of be strong in the face of ongoing settler colonialism? What is the cost of asking black women to be strong when there is already a trope of the strong black woman, which is not really conducive to many people's health? And so the more I thought about it, the more that it's not enough to kind of just say, yes, if you are a woman or if you're a man, the box is much more expansive. You know, it just didn't feel like that would be an enough of a liberatory framework. And so if gender liberation is not just about making the two boxes bigger, <laughs> if we assume that there are two boxes, is it about a third box? Is it about androgyny, right? Sometimes people are like, when you talk about gender liberation, are you talking about doing away with gender altogether? And as somebody who actually enjoys kind of a more masculine expression of gender, even though it's a very kind of queer masculine aesthetic, um, that is not what I'm talking about, even though androgyny is really awesome, as you can see in those pictures. Like androgyny is beautiful, and, uh, and people like Prince did something for like black male queer sexuality that no other performer had ever done, talking about ancestors, right? Um, and so every time that box gets a little bigger, there is a little bit more possibility for everyone. But what does gender liberation actually look like? So what I'm going to propose is that we really look at gender as a landscape and I'll kind of break that down a little bit more. And that's not, again, this is not new and not something I haven't talked about before. But when we think about gender as a landscape, what I like about landscape is that they don't have to be fixed. Think about the fact that you might have gone somewhere as a child and then you revisit that place five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later. Even if nothing has changed in the landscape, your relationship to the landscape might be different. So what I like about the metaphor of the landscape is that we can revisit the same place and be in different relationship to them. Also with the, with the landscape, um, you might not have seen everything in the world, right? I've just about managed to catch the Northern Lights uh, when I was in Iceland last year. I've been like chasing them for years. Um, you know, but just because I didn't see them, it didn't mean they didn't exist, right? Just because I had not personally experienced them, it doesn't mean they don't exist, or it doesn't mean they're not beautiful, right? And when I saw them, they weren't that impressive because it wasn't a great time to see the, the Northern Lights. So I was like, well, this is not what I expected, but it exists. And that's how it exists in this moment. When I see the Northern Lights in another place at another time, they might be as stunning as all these photos that I keep seeing and keep very, being very frustrated at. So when we think about gender as a landscape, just because we haven't experienced certain identities, certain experiences, certain expressions of gender, doesn't mean they don't exist or doesn't mean they're not valid. It just means that I'm familiar, just as a landscape can be unfamiliar. So when I'm inviting you to think about gender liberation, I'm inviting you to think about what would it take to completely change our framework, to completely not just make those boxes bigger, 
<clears throat> but to make the boxes disappear, basically. Because if you think about the landscape, you know, there are mountains, there are rivers, there are lakes. There are no mountains in Minnesota, but you know what I mean? I miss them. There are many other things. There's a lot of water. There are lakes. You have lots of lakes. Um, not as many as Alaska, but a lot of lakes. So there are lakes, there are rivers, there are cities. There are different components, but they're not necessarily in boxes, right? And, and there is a liminal space where they all touch each other. And so what would it look like to just kind of uh, bust this concept of gender wide open? Well, we don't have to imagine it a lot because actually that is, um, um, that is something that has existed. And I think one of the things that happens with history, you know, history, what is the expression where history is told by the conquerors, right? By the people who kind of win the wars and, uh, um, and write the history books, right? And so one of the things that we believe is that this rigid gender binary of like, if you're born with this body, you're assigned this gender and you're expected to perform this gender is actually a very specific historical incarnation of what gender means and it is not an absolute. And even the, medical, the medicalization and the way that um, certain chromosomes, for example, are seen as belonging to a certain gender that is not inherently true. That is a specific choice that scientists have made, right? We could have paid attention to other differences between us, but we paid attention through that lens. At some point, somebody made that choice, right? And I mean, people who specialize in, um, uh, for example, in sexuality, there is a lot of like, why is it that we know a lot more about certain type of bodies than others, right? Because patriarchy and racism and ableism and all those things that many of you in, the, in this room already know, right? So just because this is how we think about gender as something that aligns maybe with chromosomes, maybe with our brain, is it psychology? What is it? Don't worry, I will have some answers for you. I'm not gonna leave you totally confused. But just because that's how we think about gender now, it doesn't mean that that's how we've always thought about gender. So for example, recently in the news, there was this whole like Viking warrior, was it a man, was it a woman? I was like, or you could just actually talk to an historian um, who, knows, who knows that actually gender was very different in Norse communities, such as it was very different in lots of different kind of uh, historical communities and in indigenous communities all over the globe, right? So when I'm talking about gender liberation, and I'll go back to that point in a moment, but when I'm talking about gender liberation from this lens of healing justice, what I really want you to think about is gender liberation as a form of neurodecolonization. And that is not a term I've coined. The, Dr. Michael Yellowbird is the person I've seen used consistently. I don't know if that's the person who coined the term, but that's the person who has consistent literature about it. And what neurodecolonization means um, is to look at gender through an entirely different lens, to kind of unlearn what we've learned about gender and to look at it through a different perspective. Making sense so far? You all still with me? I see some nods and, 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 and some not nods, and that's okay. <laughs> I was like, what's a neutral way of like describing that? And why am I inviting you to think about gender as a form of neurodecolonization, because in reality, gender diversity, creativity, expansiveness, whatever we want to call it, has always existed. This is a picture of the Frisian goddess Cibele, uh, who was very popular in the Mediterranean, which is the area I originally come from. And then the statue is the statue of the Galilee, where uh, Cibele's priestesses were traditionally, but not exclusively, what we would now call assigned male at birth and would wear kind of feminine clothing and would have a specific um, role actually during the decay of the Roman Empire, which was mostly to call truth to power. And they had ecstatic rituals where they might also perform types of body modification that we would now uh, connect maybe more with like trans communities. And on this very land, gender expansiveness is part of this land's past and present. So there's a picture of Wiwa, who was a famous Zuni person. It's like the most famous picture of two spirit folks that you will see out there 
um, and also a picture of the documentary Two Spirits, which is about a two-spirit Navajo two-spirit person, Fred Martinez, who was murdered at 16. And then a picture from the uh, Pride, Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirit Pride. And Two-Spirit is a word that kind of emerges in the 1980s um, across kind of uh, tribal nations to reclaim something that has been lost through the ongoing federal colonial process uh, process, which is reclaiming language and identity. And so to spirit is not easy to substitute with another word like trans or gender expansive because actually it operates within a different framework of our understanding of gender and sexuality. And that's a very short version, but I want to make sure that that message comes across. So this is a reclaim of something that has been lost through this ongoing settler colonial uh, process. And so neurodecolonization is really acknowledging that this happened, that there was an erasure of gender expansiveness through uh, the arrival of um, settler colonial folks. And, settler, and I say settler colonialism and not just colonialism because settler colonialism is actually a very specific type of colonialism where the settlers goal is eventually to replace the local indigenous population. And I think it's definitely one that applies when we're talking about uh, North America specifically. So what about healing justice? If that's gender liberation, then what is the piece that it's healing justice? Well, healing justice starts, it's a framework that identifies basically how we can respond to and intervene on generational historical trauma and violence to bring collective practices that can impact and transform the consequences of oppression on our bodies, right? So it's on our bodies, hearts, and minds. I always think of hearts and minds as part of our body. You know, we, we are our body, there isn't that separation. And this is a definition by Kara Page. And there is a whole movement for healing justice. And if you are interested in healing justice, I very much encourage you to check out resources such as the Healing Justice podcast. And locally, there are folks like Susan Raffo who's doing a lot of work in the healing justice movement. And that's one of the quotes from one of the Healing Justice uh, podcasts that talks about access. And so when we're talking about healing justice, we're really looking at how does oppression and injustice impact our well-being? And how can we transform practices, systems, uh, ways of thinking, ways of being, so that we increase well-being rather than keep reproducing the same systems that keep reproducing health disparities, keep reproducing pain, keep reproducing trauma, if that makes sense. So one of the conversation we have a lot in the mental health field, for example, is how can we be healing practitioner when our very field uh, pathologizes um, and stigmatizes specific bodies, right? The very, you know, on one hand, I accept insurance so that I can see clients who are medical assistants and wouldn't be able to access healing practitioners without that. But at the same time, I'm giving labels that are inherently oppressive, right? So it's not an easy framework. It is not a framework of absolutes and it cannot be a framework of absolutes. Because if, tra if trauma is about all or nothing, you know, healing justice has to be about complexity. So if we're moving towards liberation and we're moving towards healing justice, we need to move about complexity. And I want to acknowledge, again, you know, this is like a refrain um, in everything I write or talk about, is the roots of the healing justice movement um, this is not something that's new, you know, healers have been doing uh, healing at kitchen tables and in homes uh, forever, right? And the alien justice movement is very much rooted in the work of indigenous folks, so black, black and brown folks, and especially uh, black femmes and so on. And so, you know, um, Leah Lakshmi Pipna Samarinsa talks about the roots of like acupuncture clinics run by black punters in North America in the 60s and 70s, right? Pre-Christian European traditions of healing with herbs, Chinese medicine, such as acupuncture, right? All of those things are part of the healing justice movement. And you can see how all of those things, so many of those things are co-opted through a more kind of Western medical industrial complex lens. And nursing in specifically, I think has a long history of knowing how 
that interaction is complicated, right? I was just listening the other day to NPR talking about the licensing of midwives, for example, in our state, right? So historically, there is this dance. Who gets to do the healing? Who gets to certify the healing? Who gets to be in control? Once you look at who gets to be in control, there's a theme there. I'm pretty sure, you know, that's like even in very, um, what we would call women-dominated fields, look who's at the top, right? It's often not the people who are doing the healing work. It's often the folks who are most favored by the system, which tend to be uh, cis women by and large still. So what does gender liberation within the framework of healing justice look like? And this could be another two hours, but I'm gonna do this in 10 minutes. So now that we've kind of created some of the framework. Um, first of all, it looks like a, acknowledging that a rigid gender binary is traumatic. We see this in the psychological literature. People who adhere to more rigid gender binaries actually tend to have poorer health outcomes in terms of mental health. We also see it um, as a side effect, um, even if you just look in a very binary way to kind of what happens to men and women, right? Men are less likely um, to seek access to healthcare, which has a certain impact, right? Boys are more likely to be exposed and die of violence at a younger age because of toxic masculinity. Um, women are also more impacted in different ways, right? And all those different, you know, there could be a litany of um, health disparities and of trauma that could go along with that slide, which I will not go through for today, but suffice to say, and I can give you, and I got a handout, which is about six pages of references because I'm writing a book about uh, rigid gender binary as traumatic and how to work with it in the mental health field. Um, there is a lot of literature that tells us again and again that rigid gender binaries are not good for our health. This is not, which to me, what it says is this is never how we were meant to live. This is an artificial construct that has been imposed uh, on us in many ways through the ongoing settler colonial project, not just in North America, but also in Europe and so on, if we look the, take that bigger historical view. And if we look at the work of Dr. Maria, Maria Yellowhorse Braveheart, who's the person who coins the term historical trauma, what is the impact of historical trauma, right? Higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance use, alcoholism, higher rates of suicide, intimate partner violence and abuse. These rates apply to almost every marginalized population. If you think about the literature on health and marginalized population, you will see some of these realities again and again. Different numbers, slightly different proportions, but you will see these numbers repeated again and again in the literature. And so to me, and, and you see it when you look at, look at gender as well. If, if you look at it through a binary way, you find it. If you look at it through a racialized identities way, you find it. If you look at the difference between trans and cis folks, you find it. So you keep finding kind of this health disparities. And to me that says, this is about historical trauma. This is just another manifestation of this ongoing settler colonial project. So what happens to gender within that framework? If a rigid gender binary is unhealthy, if a rigid gender binary is not conducive to a framework of healing justice and gender liberation, what are we left with? Well, a lot of questions, I would say. One way to look at it, which has been slightly more complex, but I think we will go even beyond this model. You know, we've gone through many models in my lifetime, and I'm pretty sure we're going to leave this model behind too, which is great. Um, is to look at gender as a large biopsychosocial construct, which includes aspects of identity, expressions, role, and experience. So gender is really complicated. There might be a part that's biological, a part that's psychological and social. And I say might, because this is just a model, and a model that's probably gonna be limiting. And you know, my hope is that I live long enough to see what's the beautiful next thing. But at the moment, that's, that's what we got as that more complex model that can go alongside that um, gender as a landscape metaphor. I find that metaphors don't work so well in public health 
or a medical field as somebody who's done public health research. So we need something a little more concrete. And I would say that a biopsychosocial model is that something a little bit more concrete, something that we can operationalize to keep to that academic language um, in healthcare. So what I wanna do before I finish is just a few words about what does it mean in practice? I love some of the things that were being said in, in the introduction about what is the one thing, right, that we can change collectively? What is the one thing that we can change in, individually? So if we look at kind of gender liberation as a form of healing justice, what can we do? Because it is such, so complex and it can feel really overwhelming. And if it's everywhere, right? How can we even start tackling it when it permeates all the different ways in which we practice? And if you are in healthcare, and if you're not, I think this still applies in lots of different ways. Think about what happens before you even come into contact with somebody, come into contact with a patient or with a colleague or with a student, if you work in student affairs and so on. Those interactions do not happen outside of culture. We are having all these interactions, even this interaction today, are happening in what I would consider a cloud of that historical intergenerational trauma, right? So those interactions are not neutral. This is not neutral. Our interactions are not neutral. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. You know, the, the first step of the healing process is acknowledging a wound is there, right? And, and this is the wound. And so if the wound is there, let's acknowledge that our inter interactions are not gonna happen in this neutral space. And that some identities and experiences have the long history of being pathologized or being marginalized. So if it's higher education, you know, there was a reason why in the early 90s I was doing a PhD on the experiences of disabled women in higher education is because they were invisible. And at the time in the UK, there wasn't even any legislation around disability and access in higher education. And so there was, there was no data, there was no information, right? Um, black and brown bodies, trans bodies, non-binary bodies, we are all impacted in different ways but again, you know, if we want to go back to those roots of kind of black feminism, you know, I think it's Audre Lorde who talks about the, the roots of our oppression are interwoven, right? They are in the soil of the ongoing settler colonial pro process. So let's acknowledge that our roots might be similar, but the fruits are different. What it looks like, whose body gets impacted, whose bodies get left out, whose bodies get told they don't belong or they don't fit into an electronic health record or into a form, right, is different. And that because of that, people have a lot of anxiety about relationships, relationships with other people and relationships with system, right? In healthcare, we talk about things like stereotype threat. What, you know, and even recently I had a client who was like, I am anxious about a medical procedure. I was like, of course you're anxious about a medical procedure. A lot of people are. And they were like, I don't wanna be a bad trans person. Like I wanna, like we all wanna be the poster, poster children, right? Marginalized folks have this burden sometimes to feel like I need to do things right because then it doesn't impact just me, it impacts my whole community, right? And this is also an experience that you see across different types of marginalization and different experiences. But this idea that um, you're not coming into a space neutral and there can be that uh, anticipatory anxiety or stereotype threat. And also that there are a ton of micro and macro aggressions that happen without anybody even trying to do something or intending to do something, right? So that's kind of very baseline. And then to finish, I kind of want to end with a place to begin because binaries and I don't like them, that's the thing. So, um, you know, at the end of the talk, I want to talk about, so if, if we acknowledge all of that, what can we do? Again, so easy to be overwhelmed. Let's start from kind of, you know, from the grounds up. What does it look to establish a welcome space? What does it look to establish some level of safety, some level of brave space where people can come and be vulnerable and open up? And that would look in a lot of different ways. So I was having a conversation just earlier with, it's good to have policies and it's good to have training and then what happens, right? So this is the what happens, kind of what are the images that you have around 
the EU even, you know, there was a reason why the trans visibility campaign happened several years ago, right? What are the images? Who is in leadership? What is happening? You know, what is the language that's used? And help people kind of orient yourself to the person in front of you if you're a provider, but also orient to the environment, like what we did earlier, right? Let's take a moment to arrive. Let's take a moment to be in relationship, not just with each other, but with what's happening, right? And then on a very basic level, just respect. One of my good friends and elder sibling always says, you know, it's just about manners. You know, it's just good manners. Just respect people's names and pronouns. This doesn't, you don't even have to agree or understand them or um, accept them. Just res basic respect, that good manner, we're, we're a community, and so we're gonna have good manners with each other. But if you wanna go beyond good manners, I would really like to invite you to very actively challenge those rigid gender binaries in your own life. And believe me, this is the work of a lifetime. I'm obsessed with gender. I spent most of my professional life researching gender. And I have a 15 years old who calls me on my crap. I was about to swear and I realized I was being live streamed and recorded. <laughs> like all the time. I mean, I'm a gender scholar and there I am parenting a girl and she's like, I think that's a little misogynistic. And I was like, what, what did I do? You know, and she's like, well, this is, I noticed you commented on my look and you don't comment on my little brother's look. And I was like, oh my God, I did that. And she's like, it's okay. Don't go into shame. That's not helpful. Just <laughs> know better, do better. You know, I was like, yeah, that's what happens when you raise smart children. They remind you what you've taught them. And I was like, that's right. We don't go into shame. Shame is not helpful. Um, so know better, do better. You know, this is lifetime work. If we are truly talking about gender liberation as a form of neurodecolonization, we are not just talking about um, changing hearts and minds, right? We're talking about unlearning history. We're talking about unlearning science and creating something that better serves the health and well-being of all of our communities and creating environments that are both healing and just um, so that we can move forward together. Thank you. And I believe I've been mildly well behaved and we have about seven minutes for questions and answers. I've gone three minutes over um, the 105, but we have about seven minutes for questions and answers. So if you have a question or a comment, this is your time to raise your hand. If you have to go back to like class or work, I totally understand also, but this is a good time. If not, I can talk at you for another seven minutes. <laughs> This was wonderful. Thank you so Thanks, much. Um, we talked about creating healing spaces. A lot of the people in the audience here are nurses or health providers. Mm -hmm. What um, two simple things they can go back and look at their clinic and say, oh, this is not safe. Absolutely. That is a great question. So the question is like, what are some simple things for people who are like nurses or healthcare providers that can happen? And I think, you know, some of the things I had on that slide is like, Respecting na people's names and pronouns is so simple and you can do that for everybody. I remember going to a new clinic and somebody going, I was like, what is happening right now to the nurse? And, and she was like, we just had a training and I'm trying to ask you something. And I'm like, that's okay. I'm here for you. I mean, I'm here as a patient, but I'm also here for you right now. And, she's, and I was like, are you, are you trying to ask me my pronouns? And she's like, yes. And I said, here's how I do it as a provider. I say, hi, my name is Alex Antafia. Use they, them, or he in pronouns. What, what are your names and pronouns? And I do that for all my clients. And she was like, oh, it's that simple. And I was like, yes. You should also like maybe hire me for your next training because whoever trained you obviously sent you in a like, crisis. Um, so, <laughs> I was like, there is no need to be afraid. And, and I think you find also that a lot of people don't use names that are given at birth for lots of different reasons. So just ask somebody, what's the name and the pronoun you want me to use for you on your notes? And if people are like, I don't understand what you're saying, I'd be like, well, if I'm writing about you, so-and-so, she or he or they, and they're like, oh yeah, everybody can get that. Like, it's not that difficult. 
<clears throat> that is one thing. Um, think about things like um, if you can have all gender restrooms in your clinics, I think that's super helpful for everybody. Again, this is not just for trans and non-binary folks, but for people who come in with their kids and they're not the same gender as their kid. And maybe their kid is like neurodivergent and doesn't wanna go in the bathroom by themselves, or maybe they're little. So kind of those very basic aspects. And then I think there's a bigger project that many nurses are in, involved in, which is to change gendered language where it's not necessary. Like it's okay to say reproductive health and not women's health, for example. It's okay to talk about reproductive justice, right? Like we all need that reproductive justice. So think about the language. It's okay to talk about a lactation room. That's what it is. And it's also like calling something what it is and being specific, which is actually helpful to all other bunch of folks. Um, so I think, and, and that's often what happens with healing justice. When you do something that creates access for one group of people, you are really creating access for many more people than you can ever imagine, if that makes sense. So those are kind of some smaller things, bigger things. Any other questions? We've got a couple of minutes. Oh, see, it always takes that first question. So I'm asking for a little help with language, and it wouldn't exactly be an elevator speech necessarily, but I know several people who are just beyond tolerant to welcoming of people who are in same-sex relationships or have same-sex drives and also transgender people. Mm -hmm. They hit the wall when it comes to being binary. It's, it's something that's just beyond them, but obviously they're open to considering certain differences or they wouldn't be as tolerant as mm -hmm. they are. Can you give us some simple language to converse with people about the whole concept of non-binary? Mm, that's great. Yes, I'm very familiar with that. Like, um, so I think sometimes the non-binary is really confusing because it's a really large umbrella. So the first thing I would say, it's like validate, yes. It is a bit, can be very complex to understand this, right? Because you can't just tell about a person just by looking at them. There are like a million different ways of being non-binary, I would say. Uh, but overall, it just means that you don't fit in one box or another. And I remember when um, my mom was like, I just don't get your gender. And I was like, that's fair. You know, she's in her 70s and, um, and there's not as many resources in Italian. And I said, do you watch Glee? because Glee is actually being dubbed in Italian. And she's like, yes, I watch Glee. I was like, great. Do you know this, like, the football quarterback? I don't understand football, so whatever. The, the football player over here, and then this, like, um, the other super queer kid who likes to make costumes and is very effeminate. And she's like, yes. I was like, I'm that kind of boy, not that kind of boy. And she's like, oh, I, I get that. Like, if I'd been born a boy, that's what I would be. But so a little bit breaking it down, and I would say a little bit about what is it that you don't understand, you know? And I've had people kind of get pretty bogged down, like, well, if somebody doesn't make an effort <laughs> to appear the gender that they want me to address them has, why should I respect them? And I was like, well, I feel like uh, it goes back to your code of ethics if you're a nurse, which was being cited earlier about treating people with like compassion and respect, right? You don't have to understand somebody to treat them with compassion and respect. So you might not understand them. You might not agree with their gender expression. All you have to do is use their name and pronouns and maybe not look too disgusted when you're dealing with them and their body if you're a nurse. I've heard like some terrible stories of people being asked to take out their own catheters, for example, when they were found to be transgender. Every trans person knows of stories of EMTs arrive on the scene and people die or are much more sick than they need to be because there is that factor. So I would say that ultimately is about, do you recognize a human being that doesn't have the same experiences as you as valid and worthy of care? And if you do, then everything else you can learn. But if you don't, there's nothing I can say to persuade you. And that often, that's where I come to, because if people are generally wanting to understand, they'll get it. And honestly, if people don't want to understand, then I'd, I'm just like, that's fine. But then just say that you don't see some people as worthy of your respect and of your care, and that's okay. And then maybe you shouldn't be a healthcare provider. 
it's my next step. And, that, and I say that in my field too, but I don't know if that's an elevator speech, but there you go. We're right on time, but I know there's a question. I'm okay with taking one more question and then I'll be out there for a little bit. There's books if you want to. So. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about how you use somatics mm -hmm. in this work. Um, and I also know that there are people who are researchers, clinicians, and academics. So if you could just like, go across that social ecology and <laughs> in the amount of time that you have, because I think a lot of people here in academic spaces and in this culture, we've learned to privilege, if I just know the right answers, then this will work. And you work with the body. So I'd love if you could yeah, talk more. Absolutely. That, <clears throat> yeah, that I wish we had like another two hours. <laughs> Just recently, I actually did a webinar uh, for the Somatic Experiencing Training Institute around using somatic approaches, specifically with trans and non-binary folks. But on a much more basic level, I think for me, um, let me see what I wanna say about that. Cause there are lots of complex answers, but I wanna keep it simple. Okay, I think for me on a very basic level is working somatically, it's a way of, first of all, challenging that first one wound of settler colonialism that tells us that we're separate from land and the land can be owned. So that's the very first layer for me of somatic work. I am not separate from the environment, which actually is very helpful in healthcare too, because there are a lot of environmental factors that we know impact well-being. So I think for me, the first layer is recognizing that I'm not separate or other than. Um, and then another level is to, I'm a whole person. You know, the medical industrial model wants to cut us off into pieces from a Western perspective. And often that doesn't work so well for folks. So <clears throat> I'm a whole person. And when I'm working with clients or, or patients as that would be in a more medical context, their whole people, which are part of systems and culture. And so that social ecology model, <laughs> um, you know, and, and they're kind of going from there and acknowledging that when I'm in the room, I'm bringing my own nervous system and the other person is bringing their own nervous system. So let's take a moment to settle, which is not very conducive in an healthcare system where you're in and out in five minutes, right? But even just like, oh, let's take a breath. Like we haven't met before. It's weird to be with a new provider that can already like de-escalate the body quite a bit. So I think it's just always being mindful of not running away with my prefrontal cortex, which is something I'm really good at doing and just like staying here, which is also why I start every talk now with acknowledgements, not only because it reconnects with the, literally with the ground underneath my feet, but also like this idea of like queer people in relationship and relationship to each other, to culture, to history, to time and space. And I think for me, that's the very foundation of a somatic approach. So I know we need to be done. Um, thank you so much.